Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 20. When you were the slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But then what return did you get from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the return you get is sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, the wisdom and knowledge of God. His ways are past finding out. We've come to the end of chapter 6. In this chapter, a person may find truths which are liberating and the sources of greatest joy for him. As we come to the close of it, we realize here that the Apostle Paul is like a great musician going back to the themes which he has played out earlier in the symphony and now repeating them and summing them up and leading to a great crescendo. For example, we saw last time in verse 19 that divine command to yield your members to righteousness for sanctification. And we saw that that was nothing other than the repetition of the theme of verse 13, which was so precious to us. Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. How ingenious of the Holy Spirit to lead Paul to take a supposed objection to his teaching that salvation is an utterly free gift. The objection being, well, therefore we are led into sin by that teaching. And in refuting that terrible suggestion, Paul says, far from being led toward sin that grace may abound, Instead, the teaching leads us to yield the parts of our body to God as weapons in his righteous enterprise. And so he's turned around what was seeming to be an objection into a powerful motive of Christian dedication. Now in this section, verses 20 through 23, the closing paragraph, God gives us reasons why we ought to yield our bodies to him. Now this is just like God. How gracious he is to give us reasons. He doesn't have to give us any reasons. He owes us no reasons whatsoever. But almost every divine command is annexed with reasons so that we may take to the command and see its place and love it. 
Underneath these supportive reasons found in 20 to 23 is the underlying will of God, which is that the believer is to enjoy the gift of eternal life, but that enjoyment depends on training. The believer is to enjoy the gift of eternal life, but that enjoyment depends on training. Now the emphasis there is on the word enjoy. Some of us may think of our Christian faith as a, a necessary part of our life to admit us to heaven, but not nearly the brightest and most delightful section of our being. But God would have it otherwise. His goal is for every believer to be successful, strong, and dynamic in living out eternal life. He wants you to love it, every step of it. But he knows that that takes training. And this section, in giving us the supportive reasons for yielding our members to righteousness, is also exhorting us to avoid those pitfalls and pick up those disciplines which will train us to enjoy the life to which we've been committed. Wouldn't you like to enjoy your Christian life more and to celebrate it every day? That's God's will for you. Why is it that a Christian does not enjoy them? Well, the reason is there in verse 20 and 21. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but then what return did you get from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. Here Paul is saying that the reason you're not enjoying your Christian life is that you're carrying over to the new life the patterns that belonged and were appropriate to the old. And they belong there in your life no longer. What are those patterns? Well, you were slaves of sin. That is, even though you didn't admit it and maybe didn't even feel like a slave, you may have said that you were free as you could be. Nevertheless, you were bound under the dominion and tyranny of your sin. Jesus himself said, Whosoever committeth sin is a slave of sin. The worldling doesn't want to admit any kind of bondage of this type. He says he's free to do whatever he wants. But only after you've come into the freedom of being bound by God do you realize what slavery it was. You really were not governed by conviction at all, but by compulsion all along. And sin had you in its grip. You were unable to divert from it, and you had to carry out its evil commands day by day. You were slaves of sin and free in regard to righteousness. Doesn't mean that there was no good work in you, that you were utterly free from any good thing. Doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that you were not under the control and the governance of righteousness. You were under the control of your own ideas and thoughts and philosophy. And it was not the righteous character and requirement of God that controlled your being. Therefore, you were free or separate from righteousness in its true sense. 
Now, some of you may think that you had done some righteous things in your unbelieving days, and perhaps you did. But once you get into the new life and look back at those, you see how they were not lasting, and perhaps they were done from wrong motives, and so on. And they look altogether different. Now, Paul, by the Spirit, is trying to remind us what that old pattern was. It was slavery to sin. It was freedom from righteousness. And then he says, now stop and look at the profit that was gained from that pattern. Now, here's an interesting Bible principle. God wants us to measure life by profit. He wants us to consider the end of a thing, where it leads. That's why he says that the children of this generation are wiser than the children of light, because the businessman who is industrious looks at profitability, but the Christian may not, and God wants him to do so. Whatsoever a man sows, that precisely that will he reap. Consider the end of the wicked. What profit came from that old pattern that you are yearning for and carrying into the new life? It led to unhappiness. It led to unworthiness. It brought a sense of deceit and lying. It was the love of pleasure. Was there any permanent advantage gained from it? Did that old life bring any deep, lasting satisfaction? And what of the latter end? Did it build you up on your way to eternity? No, it dishonored God. It did violence to conscience. It exhibited ingratitude to your maker. And it brought forth shame. That's a great word of the Bible. We often miss it, shame. Isaiah quotes it when he says, in speaking with prophetic note to his people, he said, Someday you will be ashamed of the oaks in which you delighted, and you will blush when you think of the gardens you planted. And Paul knew shame. How could he think of Stephen or the others whom he persecuted in his godless days? He knew what shame was. He knew what was the prophet of the old life. It was no profit at all. It was a minus. He says it leads to death. That's the end of that road. If these things be so, and they are, says the reasoning, why? Why should you have any hankering to bring over into a whole new walk which God has given you? any patterns or ways of doing which belonged and were appropriate to that old way of life. They have no relevance to you any longer. Leave them behind. Do not yield your members to unrighteousness any longer. It is ingrained in your flesh. Your sinful members will persuade you to do it, but you must not do it. The profit of those things is death. Why go back? We may think, well, my lifestyle in general has changed, but here and there, of course, there are habits, sinful things which persist. But this calls us in every way 
as far as we can find the grace of God to eliminate every evil pattern and to yield our total members to God as instruments of righteousness and not to give any room for any individual sin to come and enslave us again and bring us more and more back under the tyranny and dominion of evil. But enough for the old pattern. That's not where the excitement is. It comes in verse 22 with those great trumpeting New Testament words, but now. Those words ought to be underlined and loved in your Bible. They ought to be ringing in your heart, but now. Because they are the transition words from the old patterns to the new. They are the farewell words to the living in sin and the entrance to the new way of life. Now you've found something. You have become set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And the return you get is sanctification and its end, eternal life. There's the pattern of the new life set out for us again. We have been set free from sin. Now, that does not mean that sin has been eradicated and has no claim on us. As we've seen earlier in this chapter, sin still clings to our physical body and has this tormenting function within our members, which we must war against and mortify and daily go to God for cleansing in a spirit of repentance. We know that. We are not free from sin in that sense, but we are free from its control, its tyranny. We are no longer under its despotism. We are on top. And sin is nothing but a nuisance now, an annoyance which we must cope with and destroy in our lives as far as God gives us grace. You have been set free from sin's mastery over your life and have become slaves of God. We saw, as you know, earlier in this chapter that that word slaves of God in the Greek ought really to be said, you have been enslaved by God. That's much stronger. As if the great righteous commander of heaven came and put his hand upon you and enlisted you in his army and made you his own and put his name upon your lapel and his insignia on your shoulder and said, your destiny is heaven. You will be without spot and blemish. You are righteous in my sight and your future is holiness. Enslaved by God. You have no choice. You're his. You've been captured for righteousness. That's the new pattern of your life. And so you see how utterly foreign and unthinkable it is for a Christian to go back and wallow in the patterns of that previous nature when he has been enlisted by the great recruiter of heaven and made a slave of righteousness. You have no right to sin. It is unthinkable in your new position, in your new pattern. We sin when we forget who we are and what God has done with us in Jesus Christ. Now take the same profitability measure, which is the one he uses with the old life. What is the profitability 
of the new life. He says, the return you get is sanctification and its end, eternal life. What he means, of course, there is that there is fruit. The return you get really could be translated the return you have. There is no question about the existence of fruit in the believing life. There can be no question. If you're a Christian and there is no fruit in your life, that's a contradiction in terms. Faith without works is dead. Every believer bears fruit. Every believer. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And the Apostle Paul sings in Ephesians, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And in Titus he says that he came for his own to develop a people who were zealous for good works. Even the dying malefactor who had only an inkling before he passed into eternity when redeeming grace enveloped his heart and he became a new creature in Christ, even immediately he began to bear fruit he called out to his comrade, why should we rail on this righteous man? He protested his innocence and his own guilt and bore witness, asking why that man himself did not repent. Ah, there's fruit. There is fruit in the believing life. Every believer bears fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold, but there is fruit. And Jesus described it. Happy are ye. The meek will inherit the earth. The pure will see God. They that turn many to righteous will shine as the stars of the firmament. Even a cup of cold water given in my name will not go unrewarded. There's fruit abounding in the believing life. Not fruit that withers, but fruit that abides. Your fruit shall remain, said the Lord Jesus. Therefore, from a sheer profitability aspect, looking merely at what we gain in these styles of life, we have to say that the new pattern into which we have been brought is light years away in benefit from that which we left. Therefore, all this leads to the great exhortation of the apostle, which he said in verse 13, and he repeated in 19, and which lies through this whole concluding section, yield your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Don't yield them any longer to wickedness and evil. Here is the key to enjoying the Christian life, is getting trained for it. And you train yourself to enjoy this life. You cultivate the taste of, for its excitement and adventure by yielding your members to God as weapons of righteousness and by daily utilizing your own frame in all the causes dear to the heart of Christ so that gradually, you are repatterned and retrained until it becomes second nature to you to walk in the ways of righteousness and peace. 
and you begin to wonder how you could ever have found any fascination with the ways of unbelief, the doubting about the origin and destiny of the human heart, and all of the dissatisfactions of the unbelieving mind. You'll wonder that you were ever there when it feels so good, and it is so right and so productive to be walking in the way of eternal life. Friends, a great composer, when he comes toward the end of his symphony, you sense it because he takes that theme that he had spoken of early and he had touched on again in the middle of the production and he brings that theme and compresses it and gives it with crescendo and grace as a finale. And that's what the Apostle Paul does in the great chapter 6 of the book of Romans. He thunders out the truth in such a succinct form that if we did not have all of chapter 6, we would not see that it was being clearly addressed to the Christian. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here Paul is holding out to the Christian his two options. Oh, he said, sin does give its rations like a grudging sergeant might daily pass rations to keep his troops alive. Sin doles out its dark supplies every day to the Christian, to the sinner who is wicked. Sin doles them out and keeps him on the path of evil. The wages or the rations which sin pays are death. But where does that road lead? It leads, the whole progression is here in chapter 6. It goes from disobedience to unrighteousness, from unrighteousness to uncleanness, from uncleanness to iniquity, and from iniquity to death. What is that death? It is physical death, to be sure. And the only reason we die is because sin has come into our being. The Lord Jesus was the only one who did not have to die because he was sinless. But we must die because sin has touched our being. The inevitable result is of sin is death. This is not an arbitrary judgment which God has made, connecting sin and death together. It is the natural flow. Sin results in death. All through the scripture, we are taught that very point. And so there's physical death. And then there's spiritual death, which is far greater. Spiritual death is not annihilation, so that the soul loses all consciousness and enters into oblivion. Spiritual death is very conscious awareness of being eternally separate from the life of God, cast out from his face, never to look into the eyes of him who died for you. That spiritual death, it is unending and everlasting. It does not change. The wages of sin is not the pleasure or the charge or the thrills that the world holds out to you. 
the wages of sin is spiritual death to be utterly and finally irreversibly alienated from the God who made you. But the free gift of God is something else. The sinner merits his reward of death. These are rations given for his service to sin. But the believer, he does not merit his gift, for it is grace. The free gift of God, the grace gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that, what is that life? It is the knowledge of God. It's the light of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's the love of God being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's the peace of God which transcends all human understanding. It's the ineffable experience of having communion with God forever. It's being utterly exempt from all of the effects of the fall which have limited and bound our lives utterly free forever from those and entering into a place where we receive a crown of righteousness where the life which God has planned for man is given and it is a full life so that body, mind and spirit come to their greatest fulfillment in the adventure of being with God forevermore no sorrow no sighing, no crying anymore. We're with Christ, the free gift of God is eternal life. Now we endanger the joy of our Christian life when we forget what its end is, its profit, and what its nature is. If we go back and walk in the patterns of the old life, which is do this and receive that reward, then we have forgotten the grace nature of this new life. The grace nature means that we serve God not because we're obliged to, but because we love Him and want to do so. And the enjoyment of the Christian life is in the training to forget that old way of doing this and receiving that reward and entering into the new orbit of the grace of God, the free grace gift of God is eternal life. That's where we live and move and have our being as Christians. That's where the enjoyment is and the glory. How good of God to hand us this wonderful gift by means of Jesus Christ, his Son, because he closes in those words, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That means that when God wanted to bring you to righteousness and make you his own, he didn't do it separate from everything else he had done. But God, the great master of economy, joined you to his son, Jesus Christ, by faith, and united to him, he became the vine and you the branch. He became the head and you the body. He became the foundation and you the building stones. You're joined to Christ, and in union with Christ, 
you receive this gift. And in union with Christ, you go through the pilgrimage of the walk of eternal life. Some of you are trying to walk the Christian life alone. But don't you see? That is a reversion to the old pattern. That's living the life of sin all, all over again because that was the life of aloneness. The sinner has nothing but his tyranny of sin in himself. But we've been joined to Christ and we're no longer alone. And therefore, we walk with him and we rejoice with him and we become trained for fellowship and the life he gives is pure joy because he's with us. Now this paragraph is clearly addressed to the believer. Yet to you who have not yet known Christ as shepherd, it has a message. It holds out to you these same two roads and it shows you the inevitability of choice. If you take the one road, it leads to a certain destination positively. The wages of sin is death. If you, my friend, take the other road, that also leads to a destination distinctly different. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way that a rational human being can avoid the necessity of choosing Every man must choose. Moses, hoary with age, at the end of his days, looked his people in the eye, and he said to them, Today I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. Choose life. Choose life. You may. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's all pray together. Blessed and gracious God, who has designed for us such a glorious life and has furnished it with every resource we need for daily living and given to us a clear description of how to enjoy it to the fullest. We bless your name, O God. For this passage of Scripture, and more than that, for our Savior, who walks with us in it, now let your Spirit meet the need of every one of our hearts. We do choose life. We leave forever behind the old pattern of slavery to sin of justification by works, of going it alone. 
and gladly we enter the new life in Christ.